I'm Fathery. This is Dave. And this is Text Trek. Engage. talking about Star Trek Discovery Season 2, Episode 6, The Sound of Thunder. Written by Bo-Yon Kim and Erica Lapolt, and directed by Douglas Aronokoski. And Dave, these are actually the same people who wrote and directed the Short Treks episode, The Brightest oh. Star. Right, right. So they had done the previous Saru uh... Flashback. Yeah, and um, I think aside this, this was all—all all this was produced together. They—they they w- were shooting that when they were shooting this. Makes a ton of sense. So, they've got—they'd have all the sets and everything. Um, they did definitely show more stuff in this, um, but you know there was uh, uh, not a ton more shots of like cityscapes or anything on that. What's it, what's this planet called? Canamar. What, what is it? Caminar. Caminar. Okay. This episode is very much a sequel to The Brightest Star, which, if, if you don't remember, that is the short trek that showed the the origin story of Saru. Yeah, his secret origin, in which he uh, made a signal flare, uh, escaped the oppression of his people, and uh, was picked up by Georgiou on the... not the Shenzhou, or what? It was the, the Shenzhou. No, the, the Archimedes. The Archimedes. Um, and, and, and we found out a bit about him... But it did leave us with that impression, I know I felt this way at the time, that, like, I, I didn't quite understand, because I had always thought that there was, like, I didn't think that the prey species, it seemed like they were off-world, or that's the vibe that I got from that short, was that you would get, like, taken or beamed off-world to, to some end, and and I, I didn't quite, it didn't quite add up to what I'd been thinking that Saru's predator-prey species was like. I liked the episode. It was still one of my favorites, but... Yeah, and he's also talking about, like, this weird stuff about, what about when I enter Vahari and all the... Uh, what are you talking about, Saru? I don't know. That Vahari, right. what, what's going on? I guess we're going and, to find out in this very episode. Yeah, so this is the episode that... Also, what we saw two weeks ago in, in uh, an obol for, for Charon, mm-hmm. when Saru lost his gangula. Yep. <laughs> the, we, we do get those questions answered. Now he's a man. <laughs> well... Uh, we're just going to give our opening statements, and it's just, uh, me and Dave, uh, we don't have, we don't have any guests joining us, but... Right, we're the... but we're going to cut back to some guests before too long, so don't panic. Yeah. You don't we'll... have to look at our ugly mugs the whole time. Well, we'll be bringing people back on board probably next week, but... We felt only we could probably talk about the secret origin of Saru. Yeah, we, we both have a, a lot to say on the subject of, of Kaminar. And uh, even though Dave didn't even remember the name of the, the planet till you stumbled, I reminded you him. You stumbled over it, too. But... If it was called Kelpia, like it should be... No, that's then stupid. I remember. That's like Earth should be called Huma, because that's where humans are from. No, Earth should be called Earthia. 
<laughs> then we're Earthians. We're Earthers. Or that they use that term often enough. But uh, we're just both going to give our opening <laughs> statements on, on yep. this episode. Yep. And just give you a brief, non-spoilerish overview of our very general feelings. And then we'll go into spoilers in more detail. Yep. Dave, would you like to go first or would you like me to go first? I'm going to go first. Okay. I'm going to ruin things for you. Go for it. All right. So, um, uh, I found myself much more involved with this episode than the, than the previous ones, uh, and, and very excited by it. And I felt it functioned to me almost like a feature film, uh, Star Trek outing, uh, where it was pretty high in action. It was effectively standalone, had some big concepts, some big character beats and emotional arcs. Um, every once in a while there were some things where I'm like, wait, what was that plot point? They kind of zoomed past that real quick. And there's one or two things where, um, when we, when we talked about it afterwards, where we're like, well, I'm not a hundred percent sure that every little thing question was answered. Everything adds up perfectly. But that was actually one of the things that makes it more cinematic too, because <laughs> movies, movies gloss over details like that all the fricking time. And they're a little bit more action oriented and all that. Anyway, um, uh, I found it a very engaging episode that created that that both propelled Saru's story forward, created some memorably scary bad guys, and uh, left them with lots of stuff to do with them in the future. I think that it created an interesting chessboard that they can play around with now. What you th- say, Father? Well, this is uh, the point in the show where normally I give my opening statement first, and then you say, "Well, I largely agree with you, Father." Mm-hmm. But I largely agree with you, Dave. You suck. And, <laughs> uh, yeah, th- this is currently my favorite episode of, of season two. Um, all the questions I had about Saru, all the things that were bugging me about, they really need to explain, like, just how exactly these threat gangula work, or what's the deal with his people and their prey status on their planet, their relationship with the the predator species. Right, how long has it been going on? Yeah, what's like, the exact deal? Uh, all, all of my questions, I feel, have been answered, and... Uh, they were satisfying answers, and some of them were very surprising in a good way. I, I like to be surprised. Right, like, I think at some point we probably all had the notion that Saru will go back to his planet and in some way they will be liberated, or the uh, the status quo is going to change for him. So that that's, you know how I said last week that Culber's return was kind of a given, and I was a little bit bored with it as a result of kind of watching them, some of the stuff with him, uh, I, I don't know, I wasn't super involved in it all the time. Um... Here, I think it's kind of a given that this was going to happen in some way to the planet, but I was involved. I don't know quite what... I mean, this was big kind of... Like I said, it had that sort of big movie happening. Well, I I think that we've also had a lot of time to get connected to Saru as a character. Mm -hmm. Possibly more more so than anyone else on the show. And they they really made us connect with them even more. more. I, I, I think that, that Saru is probably a more popular character. If you were to poll the audience, I think more people would say that he's their favorite character than, than Burnham. Oh, that'd be interesting. Or, uh, but also, like, after we just... We were scared we were going to lose him a couple of weeks ago. Right. <laughs> and a lot of people were really fooled by that episode. I knew mm-hmm. I was. Like, I was like, oh my god, are they actually going to kill this guy? There's no way. Oh, oh, it looks like they are. Yeah. But... That was a good know, trick. The, uh, this episode also had just some really cool sci-fi shit that was very well done. Some very excellent production value oh, yeah. that was very uh, well utilized to to flesh out this world mm-hmm. and tell this story. And it also had some cool traditional Star Trek 
moral complexity to what was going on. Yeah, there were actually several things that happened in this episode that had me kind of turning things over in my head as I want, as I like to, and I think it'll make for some interesting discussion in a few minutes when we get around to specifics. Um, yeah, but uh, unfortunately, I don't think it was a perfect episode, mm-hmm. so it comes in a little shy from like true greatness in in the the ranks of, of Star Trek episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I love it, but I do have some problems with it. Some of them are trivial nitpicks. Some of them, I think, are a, l- a little bit bigger issues. But uh, we'll get into those in a moment. Um, we're going to rip it a new one. <laughs> no, we're just going to give it a, a, a fair right a, a fair shakedown. It's what we've always done. But I will go ahead and transition into the warp speed summary. So now you're going to get all the spoilers. So uh, be warned. Do it. Hit it. So things kick off with the Disco crew continuing their mission to investigate the red bursts as a new burst explodes in the skies above the planet Kaminar, a.k.a. the homeworld of Saru. The ship sets course and hauls ass over there, and we finally get some history on the Bayul, the predator species that inhabits Kaminar and preys on Saru's people, the Kelpians. Turns out the Bayul are a warp-capable race deemed hostile by the Federation during their first contact about 18 years earlier. That's when Saru made contact with Starfleet and got the hell off that planet before he went through the Vahari and got eight. (laughs) And after two weeks ago, we learned that Kelpians can survive the Vahari and the great balance of Kaminar we learned about in the brightest star is all a lie. When the Disco makes it to Kaminar, Pike sends Saru and Burnham to Saru's little hometown village to ask around if any Kelpians had witnessed the Red Burst or saw anything related to the Red Angel. When they arrive, they meet Saru's sister, Sarana, who is now the village priestess. She invites her brother and Burnham into her hut for some tea, which I assume has salt in it because that's how we know Saru drinks it. Do we really know that? Yeah, he's done it twice on the show. Pours salt in his tea. It's horrible. Uh, Serana, though, gets upset when she learns that her brother only returned home to look for this red angel. She accuses him of abandoning his family and running from accepting his place in the Great Balance. Tea time family drama then gets interrupted by tremors shaking the village, coming from the watchful eye. That's the floaty probe thing the Bayul have in every Kelpian village to, well, uh, keep a watchful eye on them. Oh, and also to beam them up when it is time to bring them to the dinner table and devour them. (laughs) Burnham and Saru beam up to the Discovery. Their ship is quickly surrounded by not one, not two, but ten giant Bayul ships. Captain Pike gets held by the Bayul and tries to be all Federation diplomatic to them, but the Bayul have detected Saru and demand the return of their property. But Saru ain't the same scaredy cat that he used to be. He's gotten some bass in his voice since he went through Vahari and his gangula dropped. <laughs> he takes a stand for himself and yells at the Bayul oppressors that he ain't their property. He's motherfucking Commander Saru of Starfleet. And the goddamn Great Balance is bullshit. Pike tries to control the situation and and keep the tensions from escalating. Uh, Shields get raised. Weapons get made ready. 
Pike orders Saru off the bridge, but Saru doesn't want the ship in danger because of him, and he's ready to make a stand against the enemy of his people. He beams himself down to the planet and is immediately abducted by the Bayul. Saru finds himself imprisoned in a room with his sister, Serana. The Bayul have taken her also, and have them both locked up in a weird, dark, high-tech, sci-fi dungeon. <laughs> Saru tries to defend Serana from some smaller floaty probes. Uh, they slam him against the wall and chain him to it. Then, from a tar pit in the middle of the dark room, a Bayul predator rises. It's a tall, skinny, nasty thing that looks like Slenderman meets Venom combined with a Xenomorph and a little bit of that evil chick from The Ring. <laughs> this monstrosity towers over the Kelpian siblings. But Saru has evolved through the Vahari and ain't no punk. He doesn't have threat gangula no more. He's got attack gangula that pop out out the sides of his head and shoot needles at the Bayul. And the Bayul, as scary as it looks, is actually frail and bitch-made hiding behind the safety of a force field. It turns out the Bayul are actually much weaker than the Kelpians, and have had to rely on their technology to keep the Kelpians in check. It turns out that once the Kelpians were fierce creatures who fed on the Bayul and almost drove them to extinction, the Bayul were able to take over the planet through their technology, and ever since have killed Kelpians before they enter the Vahari, preventing them from reaching their mature and less docile state. Saru is the first Kelpian to survive Valhari in 2,000 years. The Bayul are determined to keep the truth contained. The murderous monster returns to its slime pit, but not after ordering its probes to analyze Saru. One probe attacks Sarana, while another comes after Saru. But he bursts out of his shackles with Kelpian strength, and he smashes the probes to pieces. He then uses the smashed bits to build a communicator and contact the Discovery. Saru and the crew decide the only way to free the Kelpians from the Bayul control is to use the signal from the sphere that triggered Saru's Vahari and distribute it across the planet to trigger the Vahari and all his fellow Kelpians. The Disco transmits the signal and the Gangulas on all the Kelpians planet-wide start going crazy as they are wrapped in pain, being forced into the Vahari. But the Bayul aren't going to stand for this. They have a massive secret base underwater that rises to the surface. Turns out this is where Saru and Sarana have been kept. The Bayul power up the watchful eyes with an energy buildup that will exterminate all the Kelpians. Pike opens a channel to the Bayul and offers for the Federation to start negotiating a peace between the two species of Kaminar. The Bayul remain silent. Pike then orders Reese to start shooting the energy pylons, even though there is no way they can take them all down in time. But then the Red Angel shows up, flying down from the stars, and depowers the Bayul weapons. Saru gets a good look at the savior of the Kelpians and sees the Red Angel appears to be a humanoid in some type of advanced tech flight suit. 
Back on the ship, Tyler and Pike review the information Saru reported on the Red Angel. Tyler is alarmed by the threat the Red Angel presents. Pike seems to think Section 31 and Tyler are being too paranoid. Saru then offers Serana the chance to stay on the Discovery, but she says she needs to help guide their people through this new transition and help them learn how to coexist with the Bayul as equals. She then says Saru is welcome to visit whenever he wants. After they say goodbye, Saru talks to Burnham and lets her know how good it feels knowing he has given his sister a second chance on life. He encourages Michael to try to do the same for her brother, Spock. She replies by letting Saru know that seeing him with Serana has made one thing very clear to her, that she must return home as well. Roll credits. So, before we talk too much about, like, the main A story and everything mm-hmm. going on with the Kelpians and yep. the Bayul, the, the B story of this episode, <laughs> I, I just want to talk about it because it's very brief. But in the beginning, we do touch on uh, Colbert and seeing his return mm-hmm. from the mycelial network a little bit, and how that kind of connects to what Saru has gone through with uh, post-Vahari, where he is a transformed man. Right. Uh, so is, is Colbert, who's been turned into mushroom matter and then back into normal matter. Uh, back into a super jacked dude, I have to say, now that we can see him without a his full uh, dress gown-like kind of thing on. I'm like, damn, that dude works out. I'm weirded out by the fact that he doesn't have his facial hair, though. <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it looks a little weird to see him clean-shaven, but... Yeah. But he's meant to look di- visually different as he processes everything he's been through. Um, I noticed that he shied away when Saru touched him a little bit, too. So he's presumably... I thought it was interesting, Stamets seemed to be a little bit oblivious to his... The fact that 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 Culber was kind of almost dissociating, it seemed like he was almost kind of numb or something, and Stamets was just, I think, so happy to have him back that he kind of didn't notice that his boyfriend is not doing so great. I loved the writing in that scene, and it, it's so brief, but to me, I think it does so much because, mm-hmm. for one, it reminds us, you know, there's something going on there that mm-hmm. they haven't had time to really explore a lot, but they obviously plan on on delving back into that. Totally. Uh, two, it, it shows the state that Colbert is in, where he's uh, he's clearly suffering from from some post traumatic stress. You know the way that, the way that yeah he did freak out when he was touched. I think that's a really common thing with right. with PTSD. That's also something if you think about it. Yeah, for uh, months when he was in the mycelial network, the only thing touching him was little spore people trying right. to eat him. Essentially, th- yeah, attachment threat. Yeah. Um, and also the way that Stamets was kind of being oblivious to mm-hmm. uh, Colbert's obvious discomfort, mm-hmm. but that felt like something that would really happen in a relationship where one person is ready to just uh, be happy that things can go back to normal and like, oh no, like this isn't a big deal that you lost your scar and, and you might not be the same person. It's like, let's just not worry about it. Like, you know, we love each other. Let's be happy. And I, I think that's that's something that felt very realistic how two people in a relationship might act where one person is is trying to move move the couple away from uh you know worrying about the the traumatic thing just right. like no let's just get over it let's just move on and the other person is like like no like this is this is a big deal to me 
And I, I think that it positions them to do some cool drama in coming episodes. It's a it's a it's a nice bit of realism in a story that was also about a guy being trapped in a mushroom spore universe. <laughs> Um, but yeah, yeah, it exactly mirrors things that anybody should be able to, I think, any, uh, associate with in some ways. And, and I thought was, was well acted by all of them. The, um, it's also something that this, the serial format of Discovery is very good at. Is that somebody doesn't, you don't process something in one episode. You process it over time. And even though dramatically we might need some closure after, you know, in a, during the course of a season... It's not going to happen all at once, as was is so often, you know, that the done in one traditional Trek style. Um, what do you think they're? Where do you think they're headed with Culber, though? Like, if he's not kind of, do you think they're just kind of showing this to show the realism of sort of that PTSD situation, or do you think there is more to be told about how he is? Is there something going to change in him? I I don't know if it's gonna. I mean, there's obviously a, a bit of an arc planned out. I don't know if it's mm-hmm. just going to be like. Helm learning to, uh, you know, adjust to being back in the the real world, mm-hmm. or if it's actually going to have like a, a a bigger consequence wherever whatever direction they push it into. Right. But I, I think it is cool how they just set it up with the the anecdote about his scar from the time he got stitched up and it inspired him to learn medicine and become a doctor. You know, he doesn't have that anymore. So without saying too much, the the viewer can can infer that like. Oh, he's he's worried that he might not be the same person he was who died. He might be something different, and and you kind of get into like the I don't know a bit of like metaphysical philosophy sure. of like, am I the same person after I died, got copied into a mushroom realm, and then got transported back? Right. With as as the uh, the other doctor tells him, with a perfectly pristine new body. Um, Stamets, to him, it's just, oh, weird, you lost your scar. To him, he's like, oh, I lost something that made me me. Um, and, and it's clear that there's there's going to be some talking that's going to need to happen if they're going to get back together. Uh, it strikes me that it's possible he's not ready for uh, any sort of relationship whatsoever. And Stamets' assumption that they'll you know go see uh, the opera on the holodeck the next week mm. uh, might be a bit uh, presumptuous. Although, I kind of don't want to see them like do the thing where like oh they break up so that the audience can worry about their relationship and then eventually like celebrate them getting back together like, i kind of hate when shows do that because it's like a very easy way to to milk drama out of relationships certainly they've had their share of angst already like uh, which I, is why i wonder if there's maybe something specifically being set up by this but it's hard to tell i watched like the first three or four seasons of of flash mm-hmm. or the flash I don't know. <laughs> but what I'm talking about the, the, the Barry Iris Yeah, the C, the CW super show with the Flash and how he gets in a relationship with Iris and they break up and they get engaged, but then they get unengaged. And just, I, I hate that, that style of writing. There's a lot good about the show, but yeah, the, the kind of soap opera tropes that they... And in the comics, this kind of stuff happens sometimes, too. Um... It, it can really wear you down because you can feel the drama being pushed into your face and it doesn't feel organic and yeah. But I agree with you in general. Kudos on this scene. Fascinated to see where it's headed. And I kind of hate that in real life when I know couples who like break up and get back together and break up and get back together. It's like, <laughs> you know, it's never going to work out. Like there's a reason you keep breaking up. Just like move on so you can, can both get on with your lives. It's but, human nature. Yeah. See right now someone is listening to that and they're like, oh, that's kind of like how... 
me and my partner always break up and get back together, and I made them very self-conscious about their yeah. unhealthy relationship. But you know what? I bet they're different. I bet oh. they're the one that can make it work. Uh, I'll take <laughs> I'll take that bet. <laughs> but, um, but yeah. So, any anything else about Stamets and, and Colber? No, I don't think so. Let's jump onto Saru and the Kelpian stuff. Okay. So yeah, like the the main the main meat and potatoes of this episode. Yep. Oh, by the way, speaking of meat, you were talking about the. Um, <laughs> You were talking about the, uh, uh, what do they call the aliens? The Bayul? The Bayul. You were talking about them eating the the Kelpians. Do they eat the Kelpians? That's what we've always been told. Who told us that? Uh, everyone. Saru talked about how like his, his people were were harvested. I was just thinking, like, harvested could have other meanings, and, 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 and we never saw it, per se... I was just wondering if... Uh, I was trying to remember if they had shown anything concrete. It seems clear they were killing them or doing something really bad with them. But I just... Uh, you never actually see it, right? No. Okay. But, um, yeah, like, I think, like, the the most descriptive it ever got was when Saru tells Burnham, back in the first episode, when he says, we are your livestock of, of old. Right. But, yeah, the... The revelation, though, we learned that originally the Kelpians were the predators of the Bayul. Yeah. It's an interesting spin on things where we have to recognize that the uh, um, the, 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 the guys that uh, we consider the heroes were once the aggressors. I don't know if it was supposed to be, and they, they didn't go into this so far back, where it was essentially like our um, Neanderthals being subsumed by Cro-Magnons. Uh, you know, was it... Were they warlike? They clearly... The Kelpians never had high tech, so, you know, were they somewhat primitive peoples at the time? Or, you know, were they evolved enough to, like, kind of know full well what they were doing and not just be acting on instinct? You know? Were they essentially animalistic? Yeah, well, the way that the Bayul describes the the old Kelpians mm -hmm. was, he said, you know, the, the ferocity. And, and um, you know, it's kind of implied that they were just simply governed by their their base instincts so right that's that's kind of the impression that i got but it is kind of tainted by bayul biasness so who knows what the his, historic accuracy would is but right. uh, i think we're meant we're, we're certainly meant to at least infer there's some truth to it yeah they were they were like the more barbaric ones and then the only way that the bayul got the upper hand and kept themselves from from going extinct was through their more advanced technology so it, it also is interesting that the, what we know about the Kelpian species now is that the, the whole like threat gangula, like um, always looking out for predators type of mentality, that's something that they only have during uh, the early stages of their life. Right. It's like the tadpole phase. Even though like <laughs> Saru's got to be like in his 40s by human years. Right. Assuming that they, they age kind of like humans. Because you got to assume like he was at least a teenager and the brightest star, right? And, and it's been was, eighteen years. Yeah, and you know we had time to like go to Starfleet Academy and then become a commander, right? So it would make sense if he was like forty, right? But uh, I mean, we don't know how long they lived. It's a long anything. puberty, father. He yeah, let the let the Kelpians be what they are. But his dad was old, and his dad hadn't gone through Vahari when we saw him in the brightest star. But he, by his voice, I think it was meant to convey that this is a much older character yeah for sure uh 
what what normally triggers Vahari? I assume it's just like an age thing. It just happens whenever you get old enough, right? Like like puberty, I guess. And 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 what do the Baul do? Like 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 when when Vahari is triggered, is that when you're called to be sacrificed? Yeah. Okay. So they like presumably they're monitoring with their all seeing eye stuff, which they call the watchful eye. The watchful eye. And and then they're like, let's bring him in. So maybe there's some variation just because of weird genetics and stuff like that. And his, you know, people still sometimes grow old without happening having it happen. It that may just be a weird Kelpian thing. It's a cool sci-fi concept that kind of has enough real-world science in it to make it work. Because it does make sense for the the younger version of the life form to be more terrified of everything. Because that's kind of like how human children are, you know, like. If you uh, leave a kid in a room and everyone else, you know, like walks out of the room and you turn the lights off, the kid will get scared and like run out. Like, like children are kind of easily terrified of everything. Right. Then Which... we grow up into guys who people who have fists for fighting <laughs> and, and who, uh, and stronger bones for it if we have to. But it's so. just like an evolutionary thing. Like, you know, they're... Av- right. Avoidance first and then combat. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, it's, it, 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 it absolutely makes sense, even, you know, in a sort of sci-fi-ish variant, but it makes, it makes sense. Let me ask you, did you have any, did you feel, because the Baal were super scary looking, like, I thought they visually made them amazing looking. They looked awesome. That the, was a, The that super was long great. fingers, the, uh, dripping tar, it reminded me of, like, when the Uruk-hai emerged from their hatchery. In, uh, in Lord of the I think Rings. this looked like a billion times better than that. Yeah, but you know what I'm saying, yeah. right? This like guy comes out of like goop, like as if it was like a placenta or something and, like that. And not even the just the visuals of the, the, the creature design, but yeah. also like the way it was shot with the 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 lighting mm-hmm. and the uh, the distortion they put on the voice. Mm-hmm. Like it, it it really worked very effectively. Like this, speaking of, like little kids, this is something that would scare a little kid. Like <laughs> like it, it, it would be scary. I think. Right, the equivalent of the uh, Weeping Angels episode of Doctor <laughs> Who. Uh, they um, even the Baal, even their like their ship sounded scary. Their energy powering up had an eerie like you know vibration undertones and stuff. They did everything to make them visually terrifying, only to reveal that they had been the essentially the oppressed. Uh, but at no time do we. I never quite sort of can can say I, I felt sympathy for them. In fact, throughout the episode. Uh, I was like, rarely have I been as on board, uh, like wanting to see the rebels bloody the nose of their oppressors as I was in the build up to this. I really wanted to see Saru wreck one of these guys, just completely burn their empire to the ground, you know? Yeah, and I never sympathized with them, but I did empathize with them. I can understand where they're coming from. Right. And I did like that moral complexity that Star Trek often does, where, you know, you see the Gorn was obviously supposed to look like a scary monster. Right. Or the Horda in Devil in the Dark was, you know, clearly meant to be uh, a scary monster. And then you learn, like, there's a little bit more to the story. Right. I mean, yeah, like, I, I definitely sympathize with the Gorn and the Horda a lot more than with the Baul. Right. But, but I, once upon a time, they were, presumably, they were, honestly, the, you know, the more advanced one, uh, you know, group. That got like so scared by the predatory group that they, you know, they developed this technology and these control devices. Uh, I'd kind of be curious to know how that happened. 
Um, it's interesting to think of those, like, something as scary looking as they were running around, like, that are like, they're coming for us, you know? Well, well maybe, maybe they... Lived, Changed looks. Maybe they lived in the water, because that's where, like, their, their ship, right? Like, maybe, like, in the bottom of the ocean, there's, like, a layer of, like, that tar that they live in. Uh, and this is something that I thought of. Is like maybe that's why like the Kelpians use like nets to get seafood, get, get like uh, kelp or <laughs> seaweed or you know whatever it is that they eat. Yeah, that we saw in the brightest star. Because maybe like they used to use nets to like capture Bayul and eat them when they were the predators. Uh, I, I like this idea. Let's run with it. But how cool is it that like their threat gangula fall off and get replaced with like weaponized gangula? That that would be perfect for a predator. Like you look at your prey. And, like, your face is aimed at it, and then, like, you, you just, shoot out needles. Just tranquilize so. it. Yeah. Like, that's uh, pretty effective. Yeah. One thing that always bothered me about Saru is that, uh, you know, like, on Earth, most animals that are prey species, they have eyes on the outside of their head, mm-hmm. whereas predators have eyes on the front that look forward. Uh-huh. And I was kind of thinking that, like, it would have been cool if they could give Saru, like, kind of, like, eyes on the side of his head look somehow. Right, even though that and, wouldn't have go well with a mask, uh, you know, sort of, uh, that they had made for him. But, but if, if they had been able to create, that would have really, like, conveyed the prey species thing. Right. But now, like, it makes so much more sense to me. Because, like, no, he, he originally evolved to be, like, a badass predator. Right. Um, wanted to touch on the uh, Prime Directive stuff in this one. Uh, it comes up, and I kind of liked how Pike handled it, uh, maybe on a more meta level. Everybody knows that Trek captains mess with the Prime Directive. It's kind of like, it's sort of how you show that you are not a company man in all cases. Yeah. Although not, not but, to the extent that pop culture has made it out to be, that like Star Trek. Like, like where they just talk over it yeah. every time. Yeah. It's always informing their decisions, and they're always trying to minimize it if they have to break it. And that's what Pike said. He's like, let's see if we can bend but not break it. A simple way to put it, but I liked... I just thought it was a good way to do it. So I... I now, they did go and lead an entire revolution yeah. on the planet. So I both love and hate some of the Prime Directive stuff in this mm-hmm. episode. Just the, the the first thing I want to talk about, like, what I love. Mm-hmm. That is, they clarified something that had, for a long time, had been my belief, that had been my theory. Is that when uh, an alien species is already aware of, you know, warp travel, and maybe, like, they've had contact with mm-hmm. other alien races and stuff... It's okay to, like, show them that you exist. Because we see examples of that constantly when we see Starfleet interacting with people who do seem to be pre-warp. Like, we saw it in the original series all the time. And, like, the people in the opening of Mirror Mirror don't seem to have warp technology. Right. Um, or uh, Friday's Child, they clearly don't. Or A Private Little War, they clearly don't. Um, Next Generation, uh, Code of Honor, I, I kind of get the vibe those people don't have warp technology right um so i think like if you've already met other species and you're already like aware of space travel and and warp drive and stuff like that i i i have long time had like the theory that it's okay to you know talk to those people to say hi um and they kind of made that concrete here yeah when when burnham says that you know general order one uh would allow us to contact them it's a judgment call Mm-hmm. So I get the idea that, like, in those situations, you know, mirror, mirror, we want to trade for dilithium crystals on this planet. I think, you know, the Federation or Starfleet would probably be like, okay, go ahead and, and talk to these people. Even though they don't have warp technology, they they know, they maybe they've met, like, the Klingons or the Gorn or someone. We can't turn back time and stop that, yeah. so we might as well proceed with the best, the, as best we can. Yeah. 
I feel, by the way, just thinking about this, that there is a story to be told, perhaps about Section 31, um, or, or, or it even could be a more moral group who is considering even prompting or setting the Klingons or some other race to find a pre-warp uh, planet in order <laughs> to then later make contact and trade with them for dilithium crystals or something like that. Uh, that'd be some shady stuff. It would be, but... I, I can see, you know, I can see it's like, what if it's like one of those, this will end the war if we can only do it. Um, there has to be like some regulations that would keep you from just like letting some Orion pirates or whatever just find out about it and make a raid. Uh, <laughs> yeah. they, ha they, they have to watch for that, but there's definitely, I think, a story to be told around it. Even if it's Section 31 dodgy business. That's pretty cool, though. I, I, I'd like to see that explored. Yeah. But the other part of the Prime Directive that I, I think a lot of people forget about is that even if it's a, you know, a species that has warp drive that you've known for, for centuries, mm -hmm. the Federation is still not supposed to get uh, too involved with their internal affairs. Right. That's why the Federation could not participate in the Klingon Civil War that happened in the next generation between seasons three and four. Right. When the, uh, the, the Duras family and the... the and Chancellor Galron had the two sides of the Empire fighting each other. You know, the, the uh, Enterprise-D had to stay out of that conflict. Um, I've so, forgotten that. Did they, did they specifically invoke the Prime Directive as the reason? Yes. Okay. And we also hear it a little bit in Deep Space Nine when Picard leaves Sisko in charge of the station and tells him, your objective here is to do everything short of violating the Prime Directive. And everybody's get, on the same page with warp yeah, technology. To, to get to get Bajor ready to join the Federation. Right. And so, you know, that, that meant that... Like, so they basically get, have a broad policy of non-interference that this also encompasses. Yeah, but this episode does seem to really break that hard. And I, I could have if, done with that being talked about a bit more in the episode. If you think about it, if you want to go at it from a realistic standpoint and kind of ignore what had to happen for dramatic purposes, Pike came this close to getting the Kelpian race exterminated because he broke the Prime Directive. In fact, arguably, they would have come close, they could have been exterminated or come close to it if the Red Angel hadn't shown. Uh, so he well, took... Before he that, he had already, you know, broken the... The Prime Directive. So that, are you saying that was like his justification? Well, they they wanted to go back because... Uh, why did they go? They went there because the Red Burst was there. Right. And Saru, uh, he, he's like, please promise me you're not going to lead a revolution. But, well, Saru immediately sets in motion a chain of events that create a revolution and almost get his people it, it doesn't. It doesn't really cross any lines to me until they say like, oh yeah, we'll Vahari all of the Kelpians. <laughs> right. We're going to force puberty on everyone and try to make like these two races live as, as equals. It's a very like, Kirk... It feels like a Kirk decision to me. Like, that's when he crossed the line. Yeah, but... Dramatically, I think it was a good line to cross. Uh, you know, I, I, it's true that I, I don't really want Star Trek to always be tiptoeing and, and, and like worrying too much about realism. So I feel like it was in the story that they wanted to tell, it was the right decision. And, and so I don't actually hold it against them. But I think some fans, you know, people who will look at the Federation and say, oh, the Federation is actually kind of a corrupt organization. Look how many... Uh, bad admirals they've had. Look at all the dodgy things that have happened under their auspices. Why didn't they protect these civilizations that died? And you know, you could, you can, you can 
nitpick the Federation pretty hardcore if you want. And I think this episode would, would give you good ammunition yeah. if you want to. I mean, when he does really, like, cross that line that I'm saying he crossed, yeah. that's when he almost got them exterminated. Right, but it was set in motion by Saru going No, it down wasn't. There. It should... wasn't. The, 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 they, were, they were never going to kill all the Kelpians. Saru until... told his sister what happened to him and about... Uh, other... Presumably yeah, they and... knew about other civilizations out there. The... No, she didn't. The, the Bayul were going to kill Saru and his sister because they knew that they were the only two Kelpians who knew you can survive the Vahari. Sure, sure. That's how it played out. But Pike didn't know that was going to happen. For all he knew, Saru could blab to his sister who would then blab to everybody because she's a priestess and he, has high He did stakes. know. They were talking to... They were, like, on the phone with... Like, Saru built a communicator and called Pike. Uh-huh. And was like, yeah, we, we basically don't like that our people keep getting, like, killed. So... If we tell the truth to everyone, we're going to need everyone to go through the Vahari, so let's do that. Like, the crew helps, they, like, they come up with a plan. It's like, you have Tilly and Burnham on the ship, they're like, yeah, we'll just Vahari everyone. We'll use the signal from the spear. And after that, it was yeah. only at that point that the Bayul were like, oh, fuck this, we're killing all the Kelpians. I'm just saying, I think that could have come around with merely the spread of the word of the Federation... And that, uh, and, and, and what, uh, what, what's his, it's what Saru had gone through. Uh, even if they didn't understand why, how the Vahari worked, even if they hadn't been Vaharied, uh, he could have essentially created a quiet revolution that would have still, I mean, could have still ultimately led to them almost being exterminated. As, as an alternative, Pike could have just, like, beamed up Sarana and Saru, and they'd been like, okay, Bayul, none of the other Kelpians will learn about the the secret of the the great balance being a lie and he wouldn't have to i feel like that's almost the story that they might have told if this was a next generation episode <laughs> i mean it would have there would have been more complications and stuff but i feel like that's almost the direction that they might have gone i mean then you'd have like saru and serana pissed about like no like we need to like save all of our people and so here's the thing for me uh, I, i'm sort of devil's advocating uh against the federation here but i don't actually feel that way like you know i'm i'm I, i'm glad that the story went the way it did and i feel like pike made the the right decisions within the the fictional uh rule breaking uh tradition of star trek what did, did were you actually bothered by any of these yeah because what he did would have gotten them all killed if a uh, red angel deus ex machina hadn't shown up and was like, God damn, Pike, you fucked up. You almost killed all these people. Let me fix this for you. Trek has its share of deus ex machinas. Uh, this episode had a few things that touched on like, deus ex machina it, concepts. The, the crew the crew of the Discovery, like, didn't save the day. Like, like they basically, like, their incompetence almost got the whole race genocided. And an external force that wasn't, like, our core team of characters had to come in and save the day. That's very anti-Star Trek to me. Um, you know, I feel like the the Red Angel might have uh, not saved, uh, you know, it, it basically like saved all the Kelpians. I feel like the Disco probably could have saved a lot of the Kelpians. Yeah, that's true. We didn't see them. To. We didn't see them shoot down those energy pylons. I kind of wanted to see them shoot it. They haven't shot but stuff in a while. They haven't and shot I won't stuff lie, all season. I won't lie. I kind of want to see them shoot stuff. The only time they shot anything is when they shot at uh, Spock's shuttle that Giorgio was on. Right. Um, so yeah, a little bit more shooting is just a thing that I would like to see. I, I think we'll see some shooting in the second half <laughs> of the season. But I think this is also a reaction to the 
entire war we saw in the first season. Right, right. So there's a lot of shooting then. It's true. It's true. I generally am for a uh, more pacifist approach uh, to to depicting the Federation where they don't have to go in guns blazing all the time. It's just that guns blazing is occasionally a trick tradition. Yeah. But it is kind of cool when you just have like that tension between the Bayul ship and then you see like, oh, there's actually like nine other ships behind it and they're all big. Yep. And I'm glad that they did that because the Bayul seem like they'd be like a little primitive compared to the Federation. They've yeah. only had warp technology for 20 years. Right. But if they're like a, a deeply isolationist culture Mm -hmm. that they've probably like really built up their planetary defenses and if they have like 10 ships that big yeah yeah they they, like the disco could probably cut through a few of them but i don't know about 10 so there's There's, definitely menace and threat there their ships looked great too i thought in fact uh just to briefly touch on their technology and that sort of threatening nature of all of them this is a sort of a more of a subtext kind of thing but the fact that we don't we didn't see them until like what halfway through the episode something like that yeah, we don't actually see uh, Bayul until like 30 minutes into it. Right. Everything we see is through their monitors, their ships, their drones. And I felt like this was like in a subtle way without like getting it, making it the theme of the episode, uh, a critique on like drone technology. Uh, they they were very distant from and arguably like had become so removed from their victims that they were not able to reach or even consider the possibility of a truce with them, which had to almost kind of be forced on them, uh, because because the you know that that created that distance between them. They were just they were just blips on a screen, basically. It seemed like to the Bible. So anyway, I thought it was a nice subtle way to to, yeah. to maybe say something about drones without being like, oh, that's the episode about drones. Yeah, no, I picked up on that too, and I thought it had a lot of relevance to to mm-hmm. a world where there are a lot of Western imperialist powers that massacre villages of civilians through robots that fly in the sky. <laughs> right. Like, that's, a, that's a thing that happens in our world. Right. I remember reading about them uh, years ago and uh, when I, I didn't know a lot. And I found out that the, the, the gist of this article was that drones were like so effective that they were like becoming – that that was their problem is that they were like – raising the terror level in, in like all these countries where they were used to the point where the, the every the, you know the civilian population that that would you know prefer not to be engrossed in war uh were being terrorized yeah you're, you're creating terrorism yeah um and and i and i just i hadn't ever lensed it that way before and so they they didn't I, what i liked is that this episode did not have a problem that was directly like that it just kind of made you think about those types of things and the way drones distance you yeah also, they looked cool. And I like seeing Saru crush that shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I was really cheering for Saru when he goes into, like, beast mode and he breaks mm-hmm. out of the, the where they had him chained up against the wall and started crushing oh, man, those that things. That had to be fun for, uh, who's the actor? D- Doug Jones. Doug Jones. He got to, he got to fire ganglia spikes in this one. He got to, he got to, like, break out of manacles. He got to wrench up floor panels. He got to crush drones. But I was also a little annoyed with Saru early in the episode, where you you knew he was going to act a fool when they're they're <laughs> on the phone with the Bayul. Yeah, and they have hailing frequencies open. Like you knew he was going to like. He just starts talking over Pike. He just uh, yeah. He doesn't. He, Pike was not in control very strongly in this episode. Saru kind of yeah. walked on a little bit. Yeah, when he wouldn't get out of the captain's chair. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that was kind of fun. And actually. he's kind of like a little bit of like a, a moody teenager. <laughs> like Groot. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, do, let me ask you this, because one of the big arcs in Star Trek Discovery is seeing Saru become the the commander. 
right that he 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 has become do you think now post vahari do you think he is better suited to be captain or do you think he's probably worse now because like he's kind of this calls to mind kind of on a power trip this calls to mind the enemy within a little bit and its notions that the uh you know the aggressiveness uh is is a key component to being able to lead uh and needs to be at least somewhere in the mix a certain level of aggressiveness um, right now he seems to be leaning towards it, but you do see also these very subtle scenes, uh, whether when, when he's talking to his sister, when he's talking to Burnham, uh, even when he was talking to Culber. So it certainly seems like he's capable of it. Uh, I think arguably he was only truly aggressive when it came to freeing his people and what he felt about the Biol. Yeah, after after he got woke and learned that he's he's been oppressed, he's a a, a victim of this this horrible systemic oppression. Mm-hmm. And then he got like a little too carried away when he's like yelling at at his at his right. comrades and his his captain of all people. Yeah. He but... is lucky Pike did, <laughs> did not slap him down. Pike is a good boss. Pike is. He's 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 not a uh, he's not a Jellico. He's not a Lorca. I I was sad to s- just thinking about how he's might not going to be around after the season two, mm-hmm. but in a way I kind of like that because if we don't see too much more of him, I know that like they can never tarnish him from be. I like I I think going forward he is probably my second favorite Star Trek captain. Do you think there's any possibility they'll spin him off? I don't know. I, I don't know. They'll have cast Spock number one and him. Is number one definitely going to be in more episodes? Do we know? I mean, I'm assuming you didn't get Rebecca Romaine for one little scene in the I would not. Hall. I would not think so either. I had a friend who thought that was the case, though, and that friend is a fool. Well, how <laughs> much does your friend know about, like, the production of television? And... Jack shit. No, Randy does, a, <laughs> Randy does a podcast on TV. He actually knows a fair amount. Then he should know better. I thought so, too. Uh, Surely he doesn't think that. That's, I'm saying, I, I heard that second hand. Oh, uh, Kelsey Grammer showed up on Star Trek for like uh, 20 seconds one time. It's true. But that, that was that was obviously meant to be a cameo. The, uh, Rebecca Romaine was meant to be more than a cameo. It does make you wonder if there's like, beyond the show, if they might be considering uh, running with these characters. I don't think either of us were like, yeah, we would like another show set in this exact time. Just, you know, it's, it's cramming a lot of shows in Kirk's era. It would be kind of redundant to have two ships going around, exploring space, set at the same time. Right, and one of them is the Enterprise, but you kind of can't do too much with it, because Kirk has to be the guy who does most of the cool stuff with Enterprise. Um, nevertheless, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to think about that, because I certainly do like Pike, and it would be kind of hard to not be somewhat enthused to see him running a show. Yeah, no, if they announced that, I would be excited for it, but... You know, we were talking about Saru and his... Um, uh, his, his mood swings and stuff. I did want to mention something specific. When he was talking to his sister, I thought that was a really great emotive scene. And not only that, the, it's one of those, I think both of us noticed that the music stood out for me in this episode. Uh, yeah. On our, on our like, uh, things we wish we want to see in season two, one of the ones that I was hoping for was like like more memorable musical cues. And I thought that, uh, I think they were playing around with some of the Discovery, the traditional themes that they use in Discovery. But I felt like they hit like a peak with that sequence with his sister. And then there was also some good um, ten- tense and action music near the end throughout the whole thing. Like I was pretty pumped during all the end sequence stuff. Yeah, I'm looking forward to when the season two soundtrack is made available. I definitely want to go back and uh, re-listen to some of these tracks. 
There's also a cue that's from the very ending of season two, episode one, Brother, mm-hmm. uh, when when Burnham sees Spock have like the drawing of the seven red bursts, and she's like, "Oh my God, Spock, what have you done? Mm-hmm. Where where have you gone? What's going on here?" And there's like this little musical cue that when they talk about Spock in this episode, mm-hmm. they they use it again that I, I okay. really like. And I, I I love musical continuity on TV. Does it have anyways. like that? Is it that? Is, is it tinged a little bit Vulcan style? Um, like that slightly exotic uh, woodwind or whatever they use for Vulcany stuff. No, oh, just okay. curious. But I can't quite picture it in my head. Well, I'll I'll go back and check it yeah, out. Later. I, I knew like there's no way Dave is going to remember this music from <laughs> the first episode of the season. But um, another thing I want to talk about though is uh you kind of get in this direction about like the music and like the budget of the show is really showing through in a lot of these episodes this year mm-hmm. uh, part of the reason supposedly why gretchen berg and uh aaron harberts are no longer the showrunners is that they might have spent a little too much money you know like <laughs> yeah. we're now in this is the first episode from when like they've been fired it was like this episode went into production when well, Alex Kurtzman had, had just taken over. This seems like this episode cost a shit ton. <laughs> I know. So it makes me wonder how true that uh, original uh, news was. As to, as to like what one of the, some I, of the reasons were. I am kind of feeling sometimes that the show has too much production value. Because like the uh, cinematography in this episode, mm-hmm. I thought it was very well directed. Mm-hmm. But there are a few times where it gets a little crazy, especially in the beginning when Tyler and Pike and Burnham are having a a meeting Mm -hmm. and the camera is just constantly spinning around the table. Hmm. I know like you said this, you were like constantly like taking notes on your phone. So I don't know if you you noticed some of this. Yeah, sometimes that stuff may, that, that, that may elude me. I'm not like constantly taking notes, but when I do, yeah, I might be looking down for a second or two here and there. But I know like a lot of people were complaining about like that made them like sick to their stomach and stuff. It it didn't bother me, but I... I mean, there's a long tradition of cameras roaming around people (laughs) in conferences and movies. You do it because otherwise talking heads are boring. But it is, it is kind of distracting because I'm watching this thinking like no other Star Trek show would have shot this like this or anything close to this. The, the first, the, the opening of the episode, it's kind of like... A long shot with like these, I'm gonna call them Aquaman transitions. Cause like if you've seen the movie Aquaman, you know that like James Wan will like cut back and forth. A lot of times like in and out of flashbacks, but he'll like show a character that's kind of like they're in like one shot and like one time, or then they're like in another shot and like a different time or a different location. Mm-hmm. Or like he'll like do like these cool transitions. Like you're talking about, like where it like stays on the person, and it's like they were showing him ten years ago, and then it's the present, and then like yeah, and it just like, kind of morphs into their slightly older self, and the background changes. Well, no, like the camera like spins around something, and then, oh, and it's it's a new timeline. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's what's going on like the first five minutes of this episode, hmm. and it it didn't really bug me or anything. I thought it was pretty cool actually. But then when it shows Saru talking to Colber, mm-hmm. even though like I really loved that scene and was. Uh, you know, went out of my way to bring it up before we mm-hmm. talk about anything else. That was way too handheldy. Where mm-hmm. I, I, I hate, I hate handheld camera stuff in general. I think it is incredibly overused. Uh, they, like just I like ju- handheld a lot of times. Shoot it, shoot it on a, on a fucking steady cam, and you can yeah, still just... do like these cool long swooping scenes. To me, like it's so distracting when I know like oh like, there's a camera guy on set right there going back and forth like this. Sometimes I notice it, it does bother me, but I like the intimacy of a handheld camera. Sometimes 
It's uh, it's it kind of allows you to get right up in there and have a feel of being among the conversation yeah. it, in a way that a steady cam is not going to pull off. It, uh, I, I, it, it distracted me in this episode. All right, but yeah, I'll be curious to see here if that if that bothered anybody. I actually thought when you were talking about budget and things like that and their showiness, I thought you meant occasionally like when they would have like the photon torpedo cam in the previous episode or just kind of go out of their way with some of the sci-fi special effectsy stuff. No, I I love seeing, like, more of the ships. What I dislike is seeing that weird thing in the first episode, Brother, first episode of the season, the gravity lift or whatever for the asteroid that it was, like, a little disc. The transformer. Yeah, and then, like, it expanded in, like, this giant thing. Yeah. And I hated there is a shot in this episode where you see um, Serana looking out the window of Discovery, and you see, like, the surface of the ship up Mm -hmm. close, and as I was like, I'll have an image on the, the video if you watch this on YouTube or uh, on Facebook. Um, it had, like, way too much detail on there that really right. bugged me. Right. It's like the whole plating, instead of being kind of like, like, obviously there's some detail to it. But, like, when you're, when you're so close that you can see somebody's face through a window, <laughs> you don't want to see, like, grill work and little raised areas and, and detailed sections. You want some smooth planes. But no, uh, I think no set designer now, uh, uh, as you were saying earlier off mic, like, they feel like they've got to earn their paycheck. And if they're designing the set that's seen outside, you know, the hole that's seen outside the window, they want to make their set of outside that window look cool. Yeah, well, and that was a CGI shot. So it was was a CGI artist like, oh, I have all this money. I'm just going to, like, create, like, the most elaborate texture possible right here. Well, what he should know is that Fathery wants him fired. He went too far. No, I'm just saying, like, maybe reel back. Maybe, like, use the budget to do some different stuff. Like, I don't know. Maybe, like, um, build a a classic bridge on the the Enterprise. It looks a lot more like the original series than the bridge on the Discovery. Yeah. You know, like, like show that when we we see the bridge of the Enterprise, if if we ever see that. Maybe do something like that with your budget instead of putting a super elaborate texture on the CGI model. It didn't bug me too much. Uh, I don't think I noticed it until you mentioned it. Uh, I'll be curious to see uh, if... Um, but I'm also... I'm generally watching these on my computer a lot of mm-hmm. times. And then sometimes on your larger TV. So uh, so sometimes detail like that would be lost on me. But I, I said at the beginning, like, I did have some, like, nitpicks. I had, like, some bigger criticisms mm-hmm. and some little ones. Another one, though. How the hell did Saru beam down when shields were raised? That bugged me. <sighs> Just put it. Just put it in line to... that he like lowered the shield when he beamed down to the planet and turned himself over to the the Bayul. Yeah, when Burnham had the phaser on him, almost like when she had a phaser on Giorgio in the first episode. Right. If he was just saying that he had like a set, so there was a millisecond pulse of, of shields dropping when he did it, or something like that. Yeah. 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 That's um. Or if Burnham helped him, he was like, "Burnham, lower the shields for me. Like, let me do this." Right. Like, let me let me do this for my sister. Like you would do this for your brother. She did let him do it, right? Yeah, like she could have stunned him. So, so I guess here sometimes is the question is, would that extra line or two of dialogue have have done anything but like kind of be there for for continuity nerds? Does it propel the story forward, uh, or is it enough to just say he beamed down? I mean, I I think in Star Trek, that's the thing you do. Like, you explain... Like, you, you don't, like, abandon quite... how your technology works just all willy-nilly right. like that. It's not like, the science fantasy of of um, Star Wars. 
Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. Here's the thing. is like, if they had that line in there, it would have bought, out of the 7 billion people in the world, it would have bothered zero of them. Right. By not putting that line in there, it bothers several people. So why not put it in there? Right. But... Yeah, I think there's sometimes there's sort of like, well, would we rather do a techno babble line or would we rather do a character development line? I think that's where they're thinking. You can do both. There's, there's, this is this is on a streaming service. You can run the episode as long as you want. It doesn't have to fit into a network's time slot. Yeah, but I do kind of wish, you know, you know, I am far, far less continuity bothered than you. But like, beaming through shields is a big thing in Trek. You cannot do it um, when you when it even happens, though it has happened, people have fucked that up before. Right, but. right. But like, you should avoid it if you can yeah. because it's one of the kind of the few actually very hard canonical things you know just as like the difference between impulse and warp they bungled that too but it's uh you want to try and keep those core things straight about trek yeah but this is this is in my little nitpick section all right it's not not that big of a deal but what else you got um, but just a little bit about like tyler and section 31 Mm -hmm. and that uh relationship with tyler and pike yep how they're they're at odds. Yes. You know, we know from last week that Pike does not like having Section 31 on the ship. But he's uh, he's a good soldier. He's following orders from the Admiral. He's going to work with Section 31 to investigate mm-hmm. Spock and the Red Angels and everything. But we see, like, Tyler is the alarmist. He's kind of like Worf on the next generation. He's like, these Red Angels are a threat. You know, they clearly have time travel technology. We, what, what what harm can they do? We, we, we need to uh, approach them aggressively. And... Uh, you know, Pike is kind of dismisses some of that as, as paranoia. He, right. he even he even calls them paranoid. He even calls Section Thirty One paranoid. Yep. At one point, though, when Pike at the beginning of the episode, actually, when Pike is talking about how uh, you know the Red Angels might be very benevolent, they've they've sent us on rescue missions, and and Tyler says something along the lines of. Uh, uh, they they send the ship to to crises that for all we know they created. It made me think of J. Jonah Jameson and Spider Man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How he's like like this guy's a menace. Maybe he's creating all these disasters. Yeah, and yeah. That's why he always shows up there to save people. <laughs> but that's, he's, that's like, a... bring me pictures of the Red Angels. I need photos. <laughs> yeah, it did occur to me that them traveling just wherever the Red Bursts were going and kind of following in it. Felt like kind of dangerously close to like tr- following like a prophet or something like that, you know. Like they were trying to fulfill some dynasty or something like that, or, you know, some prophetic dynasty, uh, which fits the you know faith science thing. But would certainly like be making me nervous if I were on their ship that they are following like essentially these soothsayers about whose motives they have no idea about, even though it does seem like they're helping in all cases. And. uh Stamets, I mean, not Stam. Tyler also took a, a a big dig at Pike in the end of this episode. You pointed it out when, to me, and I hadn't noticed it. It's a, it's an interesting one. Yeah, where, where he brings up that the the war really had a toll on the people who actually fought in it, because we know that Pike has guilt from sitting out the war on the Enterprise. Right. You say sitting out. I mean, they were literally assigned to the far reaches of the galaxy. He wasn't like bone spurs or something like that. <laughs> Um, so he wanted to, he wanted to be there, but the Enterprise was off doing its mission and everybody on the ship felt guilty over it, but it's a sore spot for him and, yeah. and Ash pressed it. But I think, and I, I love Pike. I, I think he's my second favorite captain next to the, only the emissary. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I think Pike kind of deserved that because he was so nasty to Tyler last week. 
But at the same time, I agree with Pike being nasty because I can understand not wanting Section Thirty One on your ship. Yeah. So I, I love I love the the character writing on, on the show. Like mm-hmm. I love the 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 dynamic between uh, Tyler and Pike now, and that was not something I was expecting to really be a thing. So that's yeah, kind of cool. There there are all sorts of interesting dynamics and some unusual pairings that they had. Whether it was Saru and uh, Col- Colbert in this one. Or as, as as you note, like Ash and uh, Ash and Pike. All right, you got you got anything? Do we want to or... talk about who we think the Red Angel is? Okay, I, I was glad that you brought that up. So, yeah, the Red Angel. I think it's pretty clear at this point that it's not actually like a magical angel. It's not actually like a, a deity or anything. It's ever uh, since we saw that stained glass image where it looked like a suit, I was no. assuming it was something in a I, suit. I said it looked like Ultron. Yeah. Um, and Saru's vision, uh, acute uh, Kelpian vision, confirms yeah. it looks like it's a suit. Which they set that up in the first episode of the season. Yeah. he had, like, the super eyes. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so it's a, it's a, a character in a suit. Now, it's either going to be a character that's already been established, or I guess it could be, like, a new character that will be unveiled. But that does seem kind of weird. You think, like, if they're creating a mystery, it's someone that we already know. Maybe maybe it's gonna be uh, like Ray's parents. <laughs> That'll go over great with fans. That, they have, like they like open the helmet and it's just like nothing in there. Yeah, but what I think it's more likely it's gonna have to be somebody that resonates. Maybe it's Jet Reno. <laughs> no, we didn't see her this episode. It does look kind of feminine, right? You notice these slightly wider hips and stuff on it. Um, so I think that's that's a reasonable guess uh, that 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 could be part of it. You know, you threw out the notion at some point of like, oh, maybe it's t- like, you know, time traveling uh, Burnham from yeah. some future date. Well, they, they that, do say that, that does seem like the kind of thing they could do. They do say that time traveling is probably involved with it because of right. the tachyon readings. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, it could be Burnham in the future coming back in time. Um, what if it was like something like as, as connected with something as important as like the Guardian of Forever? What if it's Keiko O'Brien? <laughs> what coming back to scold him in the present <laughs> i think it's neelix <laughs> I, I you know actually as i think about it if if the guardian of forever was like trying to correct some timelines in a you know in a far-flung future they could use almost anybody from next generation's era say in that uh the thing that i thought of and like i have no way of think of knowing why they would be in an angel suit was uh, Wesley Crusher and the Traveler. <laughs> no, that, that could be. And his future um, feminine hips. I don't know. Everything. I don't know. Anything's going to sound ridiculous, but right. I, I have two that may or may not sound as... Well, maybe I have three. Go, all right, let's, let's hear it. And then let me know if you have any. But, okay, one would be maybe the character Kraft from the short Trek Calypso, who we saw like a thousand years in the future. I was wondering the other day as I was talking about that with a friend, if there was some reason they might... You know, that episode could be laying the seeds, just as Saru's was very overtly, if that could have been covertly seeding something. Or it could be Zora, the when the Discovery computer became alive mm-hmm. in that episode. Like, maybe she, like, converted part of the ship into, like, a metal angel body and was able to, like, send it through time or something. Yeah. Maybe Zora is a product of the computer having all of that spear knowledge that they copied from the dying spear. Right. Maybe that's what made their computer get super advanced AI a thousand years in the future. But um, another theory, I, I really like this. I think it would be super cool. Is what if at some point after the Menagerie Part 2, mm-hmm. the original series, that's when 
when Uh-oh. Pike deep cut approaching. That's when when Pike is taken in his little wheelchair crippled body to Talos Four. Right. What if at some point after that the Talosians like build him like this angel armor and they're able to like send him through time to just be like this avenging angel of the galaxy, just going like righting wrongs and and correcting things and and you just have like this captain pike who's always just like flying through space and time and maybe we even at some point get to see like a montage of where maybe the original series episode uh balance of terror when the enterprise is in this cat and mouse battle with the cloaked romulan bird of prey Mm -hmm. and and they're shooting a torpedo and it's like gonna miss the cloaked bird of prey but like the red angel pike comes like moves the torpedo just enough where it hits the bird of prey or maybe like we see Star Trek First Contact where the Enterprise E is blowing up the Borg sphere and 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 Pike is there like making sure like the Borg sphere blows up and just like all these things throughout all the history of Star Trek you have Captain Pike one of the greatest captains ever is just like this time traveling angel hero saving the day and then vanishing without a trace so our, our, our audio-only listeners won't be able to see the insane look that I'm giving Fathery right now. I was with you when it came to the notion that it could be a some sort of suit for Pike. I don't think I want him to become a superhero, though, um, who, travels, who travels around time and moves photon torpedoes an inch to the left. Uh, please let that not be the case. But the basic underpinning of what you're saying could have some... Could have some merit. I could see yeah. it. I, I admittedly was taking that to ridiculous okay, places. Okay, yes. <laughs> something along those lines I think would be really cool. Yeah. I, uh, uh, I, my, my notion is Wesley and the Traveler. Mm. Uh, but if it's, a, if it's a more feminine form and I'd like to see somebody that we know, that's why I'm still holding on the notion that it's uh, Guinan's people. An Elorian? Yeah. Uh, but like exactly what's going on with, is is something that we cannot guess oh, no. based on the given clues. Those so people far. get like blown up by the Borg at some point. It's true. They also I mean they I, have survivors. The notion obviously. that they would have a suit doesn't make a lot of sense. But um, I presume anybody from the next generation could uh, could uh, you know be wearing the suit. It could be Doctor Crusher, feminine form, red, red hair, red angel. Well, Tilly has red hair. Yeah, but I but, but I'm thinking of somebody who they could bring in who you'd be like, oh my gosh. If they kept it quiet and um, Gates McFadden uh, returns, you know, has, is, is able to return in the final episode or two, and they, they keep it a legitimate secret, and we find out that she is, you know, this is actually in some way going to set up some, some events in Picard's show uh, because, uh, because of the time period she's coming from. I could see it. I think it's just going to be like Spock or Burnham, though, and it's going to be way less interesting than any of these things we're presenting I don't know if they would use a character from another show because Discovery has tried to be so new audience friendly. It's true. Uh, I, I think I think that that's why I do think there's a there's a reasonable case we made that it's just going to be a time traveling Burnham. It could be or... number one, I guess. <gasps> oh my god! What if what if do number you think it's what if number one is the Red Angel? But she actually, like, evolves and becomes, like, this higher life form that does appear in, like, different time and space. And that's why Majel Barrett played so many different characters in Star Trek. Because it was, like, the Red Angel, like, recreating itself as, like, hey, I'm Troy's mom, okay? Like, I'm Nurse Chapel, okay? Like, I'm the voice of the computer. And it's just, like, spread all throughout the timeline. Again, if you're only listening to this in audio, you will not be able to see the crazy eyes I'm giving Mm -hmm. Fathery. That's that's too nuts. You don't I, like, wanna... I like coming up with these crazy theories on the spot, though, because I get so excited about it. It's fun. <laughs> I hope it's Cybok, actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, Cybok 2020. Uh, 
Is that who we're voting for? <laughs> um, anyway, so so I think those are some of our crazy theories. I'd, I'd be interested to hear anybody else's. Yeah, too. if if you have any opinion on the Red Angel, by all means, let us know, and uh, we might even read what you tell us on a future installment of Text Trek. Just like I think uh, Dave has some uh, audience feedback that yeah. he's going to share with us. So first up from YouTube, we've got Alexandra Sandu, who writes. Uh, referring to the previous uh, episode to the, to this one, those three minutes on deck, probably the longest minutes in television history. Lol. Um, let's see, this was the scene where... They have to get out of the mycelial network. They have a, <laughs> the ticking clock, and yeah, they, they do take longer than three minutes. Yeah, it's one of those things where people are having like these heartfelt conversations, and you're like, you know things are about to blow up, right? But it's a convention. A common trope. Uh, she goes on to, to note, Brian, your joy and enthusiasm are much appreciated. Nice call out to our uh, co-podcaster, Brian, for the episode. And says, actually, the whole group dynamic is great, but Brian stood out for me today. Thank you all for the positivity. P.S. Fathery, I definitely feel your pain regarding religion. But if I put my feelings aside, Holly had the best points on the matter, in my opinion. Humans appear to be naturally predisposed to believe, so ignoring the matter won't make it go away. I don't know how much evolutionary time will take for humans to grow out of it, if ever. Though I am an atheist, I think TNG's approach to religion was a bit simplistic and came across as rather condescending. I sort of agree with that, even though yeah. I kind of liked its condescension. Th th this, was our, this is about our talk on religion last week, so if, if you're not sure what we're talking about, just go back and check that out. But Right, it, um, yeah, yeah. What, what led to us talking just about the, that? The, the use of religion in Star Trek Discovery with Pike, implying that he went to church with his cousin. That's right, that's right. And she goes on to say, on the other hand, DS9 was a bit too spiritual for my liking. As for Discovery, I certainly don't care for resurrections and angels, but the story is not over yet, so we don't know where it'll land on the matter. Either way, it's a tough balancing act. So, Alexandra, thank you so much for the feedback, and uh, I agree with a lot of what you said there. And just one thing I do got to point out, as the big DS9 fanboy I am, the spirituality in that show didn't really bother me, because the wormhole aliens were actually real entities right so you're saying kinda... all the the, the the religious magic stuff turned out to be science stuff right or had science underpinnings but i mean that's that's how it worked with my interpretation but yeah th <laughs> thank you thank you for bringing some of that stuff up to my attention i, I do appreciate that last comment here facebook's uh adam b owen says it was great to see colbert come back i'm still not entirely sure how that works as a creation from stamets mind i wonder if that means hugh's mind is limited to only what stamets thinks he should know that could be a problem, but it'll be interesting to see how they resolve this. I can't imagine he just goes back to being Doctor right away. Good prediction there, because that is exactly what this episode we just reviewed showed, that he is not easily going back to being a Doctor. That said, I think that they're going to allow that he is the full Culber, I think. I think yeah. just for, based on Disco's history of expediency over kind of the next gen, let's look at this from a lot of nuanced perspectives and... I don't think he's going to be just like a figment, you know, just like Stamets' memory of him. I think he's, for all practical purposes, is Culver. Yeah. Adam, the, the way I think that worked was that in that the moment that Stamets found uh, Culver immediately after death, I think that Culver's mind was still intact enough that, that Stamets was able to just take take his his lover in his arms. Physical and, contact happened. And, yeah, and through that physical contact, like, create, like, an actual mycelial copy in the network just because of like Stamets' connection and I think it's it's probably treated as like oh yeah like in the heat of the moment like he wanted that so bad and there's like his love for Hugh 
you know, made it happen type right. of type that type of writing that I, I'm largely okay with because it's Trinity uh, in the Matrix. <laughs> yeah, so um, I, I think that's how it works. But uh, yeah, thank you for the comment, and also um, Adam has all the the cool custom ships that he makes. Oh, so yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll include a, a link to that so y'all can check out some of his custom ships. They're like the Hero Clicks scale. Yeah, and 3D printed. I believe so. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I was fl- I was checking them out earlier, and they are nice looking ships. I think he does a great job. Yeah, all his his own designs. I believe they're mm-hmm. they're all just custom designs that he comes up with. But they all feel like they fall into the aesthetic. Yeah, it, of... I, any of the ones I've looked at feels like it could easily be a canonical Star Trek ship. Mm-hmm. But um, I think that uh, does it for this installment of Text Trek, and thus concludes our conversation of. The Sound of Thunder. Uh, we will, of course, be back next Sunday to discuss Star Trek Discovery Season 2, Episode 7. I believe it's called uh, Light and Shadow. Okay. Light and, Light and Shadows, plural. Okay. Which uh, I think it's probably safe to say this marks the first on-screen appearance of Ethan Peck's Spock. A.K.A. Cybok. <laughs> no, it's not going to be... our crazy theory of Holly's crazy yeah, if, theory should come if, to pass. If, if bearded Spock is actually bearded Cybok. Then we should, by the time, uh, you know, uh, we... Re- well, once we record about that episode, fans will have already burned everything to the ground. <laughs> the civilization as we know it so, will be over as the great Cybok uprising of 20, 2019. I, I would be happy if they, that'd be so bold. I, I, would, I would have so much just appreciation of... of CBS All Access if they allowed that to happen. Fingers crossed. <laughs> Let the madness flow. Uh, we, we'll find out, though, and we'll be talking about it Sunday. And until then, live, live long, long and, and prosper, prosper, y'all. Thank all of you so much for checking out this installment of Text Trek. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, please be sure to like our YouTube videos and subscribe to our channel. Uh, Audio-only version of episodes are available at our website, www.text-trek.com. Please check out our site, especially if you just want an audio-only podcast. Uh, We have that available for you. Y'all can also keep up with us online. You can follow us on Twitter, at TXTrek, or you can uh, check us out on Facebook at www.txtrek.com dot facebook.com slash text dash trek uh, please by all means let us know what you think by dropping a comment anywhere you see fit uh, we definitely want to hear your feedback let us know what you liked and what you would like to see more of what you would like to see differently going forward if you want to email me directly uh, go ahead I can be reached at fatherreactual at text dash trek dot com thank all y'all again take care